<clears throat> I appreciate very much the focus that we have so far in our service just on thinking back over this last year. In this series on uh, what we've called previews of a coming attraction that we've been looking at over Advent, we've thought, and if Christmas kind of put a little bit of a hiccup in your memory as it did in mine, we thought two weeks ago, it was a full only two weeks ago, and yet it seems like a long time ago, that we talked about the presence of God. We talked about a few different pictures that we had, or what we're calling previews, of what we anticipated from the Old Testament that was fulfilled in Christ, but that still gives us a longing for the future. We understood the idea of God meeting us at a garden, God meeting his people at a mountain, God meeting his people in a tent, and then God coming to dwell with his people in the tent of Christ, and then our, our long-term hope to be with God in the city of God, but also as the city of God. Much like you might say that you're going to New York City, not just to see the buildings and the surroundings, but the people of New York make up New York, and the people of the New Jerusalem make up Jerusalem. It's, it's an interesting study for me. Last week, we took a very different approach with the kids in, and though we talked about the presence of God two weeks ago, we talked at the sacrifice of God, that Old Testament motif. And rather than going broadly theological, we spent time in Genesis, Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, and we saw in that sacrifice both a metaphor, but also the contrast. The metaphor of a son being offered, and yet, the Old Testament, the son spared, and then the new, the son not spared. The grace that we understand is more that we try to just unpack the, what Jesus had said, right? When he was walking on the road to Emmaus, that the, everything in the law and the prophets was ultimately about him. We could... We could spend time in a lot of different themes, couldn't we? We could spend time thinking about Old Testament covenants. We could think about the Old Testament concept of kingdom. We could talk about the Old Testament concept of this or that or the other thing and understand that there's so many different ways that the Old Testament themes really point to Christ's arrival and our longing for his return. But the last one that we're going to look at here in this Advent season is the concept of triumph or the concept of, of victory. And you heard in the two texts that Stephen read, really, what kind of feel like maybe the chief Old Testament text about victory, or at least the main motif, is the moment when God was defeating the enemies of the people of God in Egypt, right? Both defeating them through the plagues and then drowning their army in the sea. That decisive victory gets referred to not just there in Exodus 15, but over and over and over. The triumphant God, the triumphant God. How do we know about this triumphant God? So many Psalms and prophets even point back and say, hey, you were the one who brought us out of Egypt. You can do anything you want to. Hey, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. Why would we resort to other gods? Hey, this is the, the God of triumph was always pointed to as the God who brought his people out of Egypt. So it's kind of the Old Testament moment celebrated there in that song. But here's, here's the tricky thing. Today, we are in a very different context, right? One, we're not Jews. Most of us are not. We don't share the same kind of racial or ethnic story as the people of God. We've been grafted into it, to use biblical language. It becomes ours through faith because the story that is perfected in Jesus failed all through the Old Testament, but then arrived at and perfected of Jesus. It only becomes our story, not because of who we're related to, but because of this mindset that we've adopted, what the New Testament calls faith. We join ourselves through what we believe to a story of God's redemptive purposes, but it's not our ethnic story, right? There's the other difficulty. We're not being attacked. None of us have known slavery in the physical sense. Now, if we were in a different church, in a different country, in a different situation, I could look at the congregation and say, you know what it is like to have been slaves. You know what it is like to have those who want to kill you. You have lost people this last week to the enemies of God who are still your physical enemies. But us, it's not our life. You may at some point in your life know someone who wants your 
your ruin. But even that is not likely to be a story of your physical demise, right? Even the senses of what the old the people of God knew in the Old Testament, they kind of become a little bit more metaphoric in the New Testament. And so we have this, this other classic text that Stephen read in 1 Corinthians 15, right? The taunting moment of that, where Paul has been kind of unpacking everything through 1 Corinthians, but when he's getting to the question of what about your dead? What about the people that have died in your church likely because of persecution, or not always just because of persecution, but what about them? And he tells this entire, he gives this long chapter, right? 58 verses in chapter 15 that are unpacking the moment of what will happen when your physical body stops being here, what will happen to you, and what can you expect? And the point that he makes in 1 Corinthians 15 is, well, let's look at what happened to Jesus' body, because his body is much like the first thing that comes up out of a, a, the ground for a, a farmer. The first fruits of a harvest indicate future harvest. And he's saying essentially the same thing's true with resurrection realities. What happened to Jesus will happen to our bodies. But what does that mean? And the times that we've gone through 1 Corinthians 15, we've had to embrace two realities that Paul sums up in the word a mystery. Not like a Sherlock Holmes mystery, like ooh, who done it? But more this sense of a, an old secret, partially revealed, still waiting for something more. Like, like a good mystery movie that leaves you wondering, answer some questions, but some of the best ones still have a little bit of a question where you walk out of the theater and you're like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Well, if that was, oh, oh man, my noodle is just a little bit. That's a New Testament mystery, especially this one. Because on one hand, he says, we're kind of like seeds. And if you plant a seed, we've talked about this before. If you told a little kid, I'm going to take a lima bean seed. We're going to put it in the dirt and it's going to grow. What does he expect's going to happen? We're going to get a giant seed. But that's not the way it works. The thing doesn't even look like a seed. You kind of get a sense of it, especially if you can see one of those like transparent glass through the dirt. You get to see how the seed transforms into something different. Paul's like, yeah, that's what I mean by resurrection. Where perishable puts on imperishable. Your body, but not your body. Your physical form, but perfected. But, and you're walking out going, I still got questions. Thank you. Mystery. But... In the midst of that mystery comes this moment of taunting, which we never tell our kids to do, right? Go play a sport. Be a good sport. If you win, go shake the hand. Don't stand over them and taunt them and like, yeah, boy, right? You don't, don't do everything you'd see done in video games, right? Except for Paul says, no, actually do that. Take the Old Testament language and taunt death. You had a stinger. Where'd it go? You used to be potent. What happened? Oh my goodness. Where's your victory, right? And he gives us a victory. So here's the dilemma we've got. If we're going to take this Old Testament theme and try to apply it to our lives in practical ways, what we believe in New Testament terms isn't that the real stuff of the Old Testament is only kind of quasi-true in the New Testament. Like, like, oh, it was really, really true that God was a triumphant victor in the past. Or it was really, really true that God was present with his people in the past. Or it was really, really true that God sustained his people in the past. And today for us, I mean, we've got every convenience. We've got refrigerators and we've got, you know, a strong military. We don't really need God that way. So it's kind of like less. Oh, man, if that's the way you're interpreting the Bible, you're missing out. You are just missing out entirely because what actually is true of Old Testament stuff is that you get weirdly like echoes of something that hasn't hit yet. Maybe more like thunder before the lightning flash where you're aware of it, but it is a preview of something bigger, bolder, even if we just use Jesus language about like, you know, eating food. When he's talking to people, he's saying like, hey, you, you want bread, right? Because I just gave you bread. And in the Old Testament, my father gave you bread. 
And so now you just want more bread. And I'm just trying to tell you something. That's not even real bread. You know what's real bread? My body. You know what's real drink? What should really sustain you? In other words, everything about this is just a picture. You want another example? Paul says, hey, you know that whole marriage and sex thing you guys have got going on? Like basically every culture since God created has had this marriage and sex thing going on. Guess what? Not the real thing. It's just a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And if you take that mindset, you think, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, okay. Real stuff is real. But it's, a po- it's supposed to point to a greater real. If we, if we adopt that, and really not just let that kind of think about how we think about victory, but how we think about so much through the Old Testament, man, I tell you what, we could do this every Advent, just like we kind of t- try to take every January and go through some Psalms, which we're going to do, by the way, teaser, we're going to deal with some tough ones this time. Lament, anger, so songs of lament, songs of, that are called imprecatory. God, rip their pregnant whipping open. What? That's not making a song on Sunday morning, but it made the biblical psalter. What do you do with that? I don't know. We're going to have fun with it. Uh, anxiety, right? My life is a mess. God, you have screwed up. That doesn't make it onto our songs, but it's there in the Psalter. Like, we're going to deal with some tough ones. Like, but if we did that every January, we're trying to make that a tradition, more or less. We could do, honestly, the same thing over Advent, couldn't we? Just take all these Old Testament themes and realize, boy, the stuff that they experienced and they knew, that really points to something that's truer and greater and even more to be celebrated. But we're not in future Advents. We're in this one, and we're going to talk about victory, right? The triumph of God. So let's look at those two, just briefly again, these two key texts, Old Testament motif, New Testament motif, Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Anybody grow up with this song? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Hey, hey, we would always do it faster and faster and faster. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my... No? Man, it's me and Brad. I am the only two of us. It's like, oh, and Barb, okay, all right, we got Fundy Camp coming here. Like, that was, that was like one of our VBS songs right there. I can bring it back. You always have to do it faster, faster, faster. And, but you're a little kid, and you're like, I've never, like, seen a horse thrown into the sea, and I don't know why I'm celebrating drowning horses. Like, what is going on here, right? Same thing, kind of in this taunting thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, the sting of death, sin is, ugh, here it comes. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. These are, these are texts that feel like they're worth mining a bit, don't they? Because if, in my, in my understanding of things, if we misunderstand the conflict that, as the Bible portrays it, then we misunderstand the triumph as the Bible portrays it, and then we misunderstand what this verse means, that God gives us that victory. Because if the main problems in life that the Bible wants to address, the main conflicts, are God's people aren't happy. God's people are just put out right now. And God's like, whoa, that's a problem. I have to solve it. That is my enemy. I must defeat it. Here, people, let me make you very, very happy. Then that's the victory. And then we're like, oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, God, give me that victory. And sadly, that's what the American church is exporting into the world. Along with all our money, we are sending that and our wealth overseas and saying, that's what God wants. You don't have enough money. I'll give you more money. Here's real money and a whole bunch of heresy. And we're just, that's, it's like our legacy into the third world in particular. This is, this is shameful. Why? Because it's the message you want. All right, let's, let's stop taking prosperity theology and pretending it's not the message we want. I don't have a girlfriend. God, what are you going to do about that? I don't have a job. God, what are you going to do about that? God, I'm your people, and I'm a little put out. That's the main problem. That's the conflict. How are you going to be victorious over these problems in my life? That's our approach to God so much, isn't it? It doesn't mean don't pray. 
It doesn't mean don't speak out your, your, your needs and present them to the Lord. Just don't define the Bible's motif of conflict and triumph based on our personal needs. I think conflict is so different the way that we understand it in Scripture. And therefore, triumph is so different if we let Scripture inform it. And then what it means for that to be shared with us is so different. Because it could mean you're unhappy through it all. You suffer through it all. You have to struggle through it all. And yet the Bible's true. So this was, this was a tough one. This was a tough one. But, but let's, let's dive in and let's take step one. Let's define the conflict. I don't think it's that difficult to do. Psalm 2, I think, puts it out in some pretty clear terms. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then he goes on to describe some of what they say. But the conflict is set up this way. The kingdoms of the earth are are speaking up against God. Let's throw off his restraints against us. Anything that God has said we can't do, let's do it anyway. You can see that story play out all over the place. The garden, the tower, right? The stories we've already looked at, we have seen God's people live out Psalm 2. Why? Because there was another voice in the garden living out Psalm 2, raging against God, throwing off restrictions against God, inviting God's people made in his image to do the exact same thing. Why? Because there is one authority over creation, and that authority is the creator. And the main conflict of scripture is that there is a raging against that authority and yet, we have to understand the conflict this way. God's doing okay in the middle of it. With all that raging, all that tearing off, with everything that is currently happening in our country today that wigs you out, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's the conflict Biblically described. A world in a lot of ways broken and suffering, but in rebellion against the creator and the creator undaunted, not anxious, laughing. Because it just looks so futile from his perspective. And this then helps us to understand our battles as Joshua needed to understand. By the way, we don't have like a central text. We're going to be in a lot of different places today. So just buckle up. That's not normal for us. We're normally kind of one place and then sort of out from there. We're moving today. So Joshua, though, he, he, he's, if, if anybody is going to be able to say, right, there is a battle going on right here. And I got to figure out, like, you know, all the terms of this battle and the conditions of the battle and the battle lines of the battle, it'd be a guy like Joshua, except for the moment comes in Joshua's life when he was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, the only obvious question you see, if you see anybody in battle, uh, me or them, right? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Key question I got to figure out. Are you fighting with me or am I fighting against you? And he said, no. Great answer. He says more, but he says no. Or if we were going to, you know, kind of give this another translation, he'd say, there are very few stupid questions, but that was one of them. I refuse to think about life on your terms, which is a frustrating way for God to exist if we have to then take our problems and bring them before God and say, God, are you for my unemployment or against my unemployment? Are you for this person who's been gossiping about me in my friend group or are you against them and on my side? Are you this or that? I've got so many battle lines in my life and I've got to figure out. I just made it through Christmas. I just endured all of that in my family. I just got slandered and, and messed with. 
Or I just got ignored. I get, whatever. You, you got your lines, right? We want to figure out, God, you for me or you for my enemies? And if we understand conflict in Scripture, right, we feel Joshua's same sense of disappointment and rebuke. And he says, uh, no. I command the armies of the Lord. And if you remember the VeggieTales moment of this, with Bob the tomato narrating in the background, Larry the cucumber standing there before the asparagus that is the angel of the Lord, The cucumber falls on his face and then speaks his next words into the dust. Because that's exactly what Joshua does. He realizes what's going on. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And then he says the only thing you should say if you are worshipping. Okay, well then what are my orders? See, if I get conflict right, I'm not giving God commands. I'm not dictating what God's will is going to be. I am then ready to receive God's will for me because he's the commander. He's the one who's determining conflict in this world, not me. Is Joshua engaged in a battle? To be sure. Are you potentially engaged in a battle? To be sure. As we look into 2024 and we have our dreams about what could happen, the only reasonable, responsible way to make those plans is to look back at 2023 and say, well, what went wrong? What were the problems? And you're going to be able to list out a few enemies. You might be one of them. You might be looking and going, no, I got a little bit of an enemy residing in me or a big one. And that can't continue. You might see other people who are genuinely been an opponent of you or of God's will. You might feel the, the encroaching sort of hostility the surrounding sense that we're getting flanked by the world. We're, we're being surrounded and there's a sense that things feel like they're caving in on us. And yet, across it all, God's not like, yeah, I don't have to pick sides in the battle. You do. Just so we're clear. Conflict is me laughing from heaven at the raging nations. That's what's going on in the world. So, you see why that's more important to kind of define from the very beginning? If we don't get that right, everything else from there on gets tricky. Because here's why. Every hero of the Old Testament at some point seems to also become an enemy of the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? Almost from the very beginning, when it seems like Adam and Eve are the the ones on God's side, they quickly become the enemy. God then promises one who will actually crush that enemy and he will send him into the world. And so you're just reading the pages of the Old Testament saying, is it that one? He seems like a hero, but he becomes a villain. He seems a hero, he becomes a villain. Noah gets drunk. David is a rapist. You just got problems all over the place where you're saying, man, from the, from the beginning to the end, from the best to the worst, even this guy who doesn't seem to fail himself, fails to bring up godly kids who come after him. All of the kings of Israel and Judah, I mean, Israel's just the worst. Judah's got like 40% success rate for all of their like kings, but very few of them are godly to godly. It's just a mess. It is just a mess across the board. And so we're hoping who's going to be this one that's going to defeat? Who's going to be the one that's actually going to step into this and actually bring something? Well, what is it then that God does in his actual triumph? Let's return to Exodus 15. Because Exodus 15 is interesting. We read the beginning of it. But the beginning of it says this, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, Here are the lyrics, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Exodus 15 ends then with the exact same phrase. It's just not Moses singing it with the people. This time it's Miriam singing it with the people. Interestingly, we often call Exodus 15 Miriam's song, but she kind of has the chorus at the end. She just must have done a great job singing the chorus. And everybody's like, 
hey, Moses, that was great. Could you, shh, Moses, Miriam's got the mic now. Man, she's doing a great job. We're just going to call this whole thing Miriam's song. But she's singing the same thing. Then, Miriam then sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. Remember one of those, like, literary clues when you see bread on one side and bread on the other? Remember, the, remember what we talked about, that sandwich kind of motif that can sometimes be there in Hebrew poetry or in, or in biblical literature where you see something bracketed, it kind of reminds you like a sandwich. We define the sandwich by what's in the middle. What was in the middle? It was where Stephen ended. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That's the question that determines whether you're on God's side or not. Israel, at this moment, on God's side. Three months later, at the mountain, not on God's side. Because they're failing at this question. This is victory right here. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? No one is majestic in holiness like you. No one is awesome in glorious deeds like you. No one is doing wonders like you. You're the one who stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. The central question at the end resolves itself around whether or not you say God is holy. So that all the way through the Old Testament, even to the very end, not the very end necessarily, but to the prophets who are really trying to call people back to this. Isaiah says, to whom then, well, these are God through Isaiah, Saying, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Look up, look up at the stars and see it all. Now realize how little the Israelites could see. How very much we now see. In the sense that their whole scope of vision and understanding of stars is now practically contained in one star that we see. Because we understand deeply by peering into space what all's going on there. And at no point that we learn more is God like, oh man, you got to the limits of my understanding of the heavens. (laughs) You surpassed me. Congratulations. It took you a few thousand years. But finally you got beyond my knowledge of the heavens. No. Peer as deeply as you want. Is there anyone who holds, who contains them? Mm -mm. Why? Because in my strength and in my care, I am holy. Now here's, here's what that means. That means that the central problem of the Old Testament is not one of people getting beaten up on the battlefield, but God getting beaten up in Israel's heart. The central conflict and question of the Old Testament is who will Israel worship? Will they worship God? Will they believe that the God of Egypt is the God of Sinai, is the God of Canaan, is the God of the world? Or will they think that every time their life starts to shrink in around them, they're like, we got to give up on God and we got to go find something else. And the only thing they can go around to is idolatry and idols around them. And when they do, just think back to the book of Judges, right? What's the central conflict of the book of Judges? Oh, the Israelites are getting beaten up. No, that is not. That is the secondary conflict of the book of Judges. The central conflict of the book of Judges is what starts every single cycle through the book of Judges. The thing that flushes the toilet every time is they turn from God and start worshiping idols. They turn from God, start worshiping idols. And after that, the story is predictable. Then they get beaten up. Then they're dumb for a while, increasingly dumb as the book goes on. Then they call out to God. At one point, they call out to God, and God's like, I'm not going to help you. Get rid of the idols, people. And they're like, oh, yeah, the idol thing. Sorry. Oh, got rid of the idols. And God's like, okay, now I'll help you. You see the, you see the point? The central problem isn't that of the people of Israel getting beaten up. The central problem of the Old Testament is the fact that the Israelites are worshiping the wrong one. Is there anyone like me? Main point of Exodus 15, nobody like God. Isaiah's point, every other prophet's point practically, nobody like God. 
So when Jesus arrives, as the triumphant Messiah, what's everybody want him to do? Beat up our enemies! Beat up our enemies! Jesus is like, yeah, I'm on it. You just didn't get conflict right. For hundreds of years, you haven't got the central question right. I'm here to be triumphant over your main enemy. And then to share that victory with you. But guys, we have to pause, and at least before we're going to step into the rest of this message, we got to pause and ask a question. Is your central prayer through the difficulties that you faced in 2023, Lord, will you fix my problems, or Lord, will you use my problems to fix my heart? I gotta be honest. Mine is usually, Lord, fix my problems. I have learned more from Michael Gregory in this area than I think I have in any other theology book. Because usually when Michael and I get together and I'm asking, how are you doing with the migraines? How are you doing with the swelling? How are you doing with this? Hey, it rained yesterday. Now your head blew up. How are you doing? We can talk about the practical stuff, but Michael's prayer request usually comes back down to, would you strengthen my faith in the midst of this trial? Not, Lord, would you remove this trial so I can have faith? And I get corrected by that practically every time because my disposition, and it's possible this is yours as well, is, Lord, fix my problems so I can trust you when God's solution is, no, I brought the problem so you'd think about trusting me again. Will you have faith through it? Not will you have faith until it's gone or only once it's gone. Sorry. And yet Jesus came in so many ways as the one who really is just defeated and reigned over every one of our enemies. I mean, his whole story is told as a parallel of the story of the Old Testament, right? We have someone who came through water, went into the wilderness. That sounds familiar. Are you talking about Jesus? Are you talking about Israel? Yes. We have a chosen son tried in the wilderness. Who are you talking about? Israel? Are you talking about Jesus? Yes. So we've got the whole way. Matthew in particular tells the story, right? So that when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we're like, Wait a second, I've heard about the people of God, the Son of God, coming to the mountain of God before. Matthew's like, yes, you're getting it now. All the ways that all the heroes and all the people of the Old Testament failed, Jesus has come and he is victorious. Jesus is coming, he defeats the serpent in the wilderness. He comes to the mountain, explains the law of God. He's the one rescued through the water. He's the one who's rescued from Egypt, ultimately, where you're reading and you're going, Matthew, what are you talking about? That doesn't fulfill anything for the Old Testament. Matthew's like, man, you are not reading my story. Israel failed. Jesus didn't. Triumphant from the beginning through the very end. He's the one who defeats the serpent. He's the one who is attacked by the nations who, if you read some prophets, are like, he's talking about, in some of the weirdest language, these beasts rising up out of the sea. And you're like, well, we met a beast in the garden before. And he's like, yeah, but this is a beast that's like a nation. You're like, whoa, man, you are, you doing okay? Because I don't understand anything you're talking about. He's like, yeah, don't, under, don't worry. I'm trying to get you to get this. That garden beast is at work through the nations. And those nations are oppressing people. David is facing Goliath. And Goliath is described as wearing scaly armor. And you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. And Samuel's like, yeah, you're getting it. You feel, are you feeling this? Jesus faces up against the nations. He's on trial in front of the greatest scaly nation in front of him. And he's able to say, man, you, you don't have any power except for what God's given to you. They come to get him and all their army speaks one word and they're flattened and yet he still walks in. And like Jonah, the beast swallows him. And you think, what is this Messiah doing by dying? And Paul looks back and goes, um, 
were winning. That's what he was doing. Because everybody has seized power and then used it to oppress. Everyone else has seized power and used it to oppress. This one came with power and used it to serve and to suffer and to die. So that he could not only conquer Satan, not only conquer sin and death, but also conquer, sorry, not only, man, I ruined that sentence right there. I gave it to you in the middle. He came to defeat death itself, not just the nations and not just Satan. He came to actually defeat our greatest problem, our greatest fear. And then triumphantly, Paul says, he's giving that to you. See, when a king would conquer a land, the way that that king rode into the city mattered more than anything. If he's coming with war horses and battering rams, he does not have your best interest at heart. He sees you as a problem and he's about to ruin you. But if that king comes gently, if that king approaches you peacefully, And his intentions are to share victory with you, not to make you part of the spoils. And what we primarily get is God talking to New Testament people in Old Testament language and saying, the king, the triumphant king over every enemy you've ever faced is here to share that victory with you. Let's close by looking at three ways God wants to share that victory with us. If we understand this conflict right, and with his victory, right? Look at how this gets deployed to us. First comes in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to the whole thing again. Not the whole thing, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Big problem. Nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. We'll all be changed. The twinkling, the trumpet, the last trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised but this time imperishable. And we'll be changed. This perishable body puts on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Then will come to pass the saying that is written, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He is getting this language from the Old Testament. He is quoting Hosea, where we read, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Here's here's the weird thing. You know who Hosea is mainly talking to? God's people. He's pointing and saying, your enemies aren't just out there. You become the enemy of God through your idolatrous ways. And Hosea largely forecasts the destruction of the northern kingdom. Samaria is done afterwards. The best they become is the Samaritans of the New Testament, hardly hardly the purified people of God. Still important, but not messianically important in that sense. Isaiah 25 Paul's also quoting, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So here we are reading this, right, from Paul, who's looking backward at Isaiah, but in the middle of that was Jesus, right? And on one hand, he's saying what Jesus did changes the narrative over and over and over. The narrative was just so clear. The narrative was just so problematic, and the people of God were all getting messed up. Jesus came, and he changed something definitively, but almost using a World War II kind of analogy, that's the D-Day moment, That's the decisive victory where everybody can anticipate a new turn in the war. The war's not yet done. It's being fought, but it's it's a battle won, still fought. It is a victory being carried out from that point forward. And so there's a lot of blood that's spilled from that point. There's a lot of suffering, and yet it's on the path to a victory won but not assured. Not assumed, accomplished, but not yet finalized. 
That's this world Paul's describing. And so he's quoting Old Testament stuff, saying what Jesus did is making this happen. And we're enjoying an element of the fact that we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. But we're going to die. But we don't have to be afraid. And the, the stinginess of the law and the way that sin kind of worked in this unholy trinity, it was a real problem. But we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Why? Because he continues and says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But here we go, verse 56, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then unpacks this when he's talking to the Romans and he says, there is therefore, describing a lot of this same reality of resurrection and sin, the way that faith binds us to things that God has defeated through Jesus already. But if we through faith join ourselves and we become part, not of Israel's story, but of God's story through Jesus. And now we've got this victory that's been given to us. And so he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, it set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin of death. Because you know what this means in 2024 for you practically speaking? It means that God is not just broken over whatever besetting sin was really messing with your world in 2023. It's not just he's abstractly done that. He's actually functionally set you free. You can choose to sit by that ball and chain and still be there. But when you look down, you have to acknowledge the chain is broken. You can keep acting like a slave if you want to, but you don't have to because you're free. The Christian life is learning to get up from the ball and realize the ball doesn't have to come with you. The Christian life is learning so that to, to believe that I am, as it's bolted right out, set free in Christ. I don't have to be afraid of sin and death and all that stuff that's there. It means you don't have to sin in 2024. Do you believe that? You don't have to do what you did in 2023. You don't have to do that anymore. You can To say this in the way that we're talking about it, don't hold me accountable for all the theological stuff. You can be sinless in 2024. Whether you will be, other theological categories. But freedom decisively won means it's possible. Pacare, passe non pacare, possible not to sin. I just quoted Latin, which means I'm talking about church father stuff. And you can trust that Christians have believed this for a long time or whatever. Ask Michael. He's, 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 he's got a little bit more going on with the theology behind all that. But you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, you're going to sin in 2024, but you didn't have to. And if you believe that, that's the difference. The second way that God has shared the victory, it shows up in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to this in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he teaches me us, right? The, the people of God. He himself, now that's Jesus, took, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. And here you would think he's going to finish it the way that we were just reading, right? You, because we are fleshy and bloody and we've got these, these frail bodies and we, we struggle and all that kind of stuff, right? Only human kind of stuff. He became only human in the same way. Why? So that he could destroy that sinful pattern. You might think that's the way he's going to go, but look at the way he's actually talking about it. So that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That means that what Jesus did in coming didn't just destroy the power that was sort of wed between sin and death and the law. He, he did. But the second thing he also did was he silenced the accuser who's been accusing God's people for ages. Now, the accuser is a weird character in the Old Testament. He shows up 
in the snake, but there's so much metaphoric about that that's kind of happening. He shows up like we talked about in Job, right? Using an, an Old Testament like character who's bringing up thoughts in a courtroom. He's kind of there, and, but then he's going and actually making problems for people on earth. So we're kind of like, that feels like the Satan, doesn't it? Like that really does seem snake-like and problematic. We, we've got this one moment right, where there's a priest who's showing up before God, but he's kind of done something in his robes that, like, have made them not pure. It's, it's kind of gross. And the, the, the accuser's there, and he's going, <laughs> basically. That's all he can do is just not invent a truth, but say, hey, you're not worthy of the holy robes that you've got. And the solution isn't to lie about it. No, I'm not. Yes, I, yes, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not it. It's that new stuff is provided for him. Provision is made for the problem. The accuser's still doing the exact same thing today. His strategy hasn't changed. Question what God said, point out your sin. That's his strategy. That's all he's got. And what Jesus did, according to the author of Hebrews, was to destroy him as an accuser. He has no more ability to accuse if you recognize I'm both free and, wait a second, I'm forgiven. So that when the accuser comes and says, you are lustful, say, yeah, but I'm forgiven and I'm fighting and I'm free. You are slanderous, yes, but I'm forgiven and I'm fighting and I'm free. You are gluttonous. You are proud. You are so self-centered. Yes, but I'm forgiven and I'm fighting and I'm free. You remember those three phrases? You have enjoyed the defeat that is true over this accuser. It's why John could write to his, his, uh, his I don't know what they are actually, scattered churches essentially. And he could say to them, I'm writing to you little children and fathers and young men. If you just look at the whole thing in context it's it's kind of an obscure text it's cool but it's it's a little obscure he calls them little children he calls them fathers calls them young men and he says in the beginning and he says at the end you've overcome the evil one how because they somehow like are never tempted again no it's just they've remembered those phrases i'm forgiven i'm fighting i'm free and in doing so, you've overcome the evil one. Why? Because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is exactly what Jesus did when he faced up against Satan, right? The devil said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone. For here's what's written. You'll worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left. Guess what? You can do that in 2024. It's not just that you don't have to sin because the internal thing's broken. The voice of the accuser is now broken. You, you can fight temptation, not just within, but the voice of temptation coming from the accuser that you should just live the life of a sinner because that's really all you are as a sinner. Wait, wait, wait. If I, if I wait, yeah, but I'm forgiven and I'm fighting and I'm free, then guess what? You've overcome the evil one. You're walking the path Jesus has, squaring up against him in your wilderness and saying, be gone, man. I don't have to listen to you anymore. Now, if you did that, do you know how different you would be in this world? Because the rest of the world, despite how cool and how loud they seem, despite how popular and how powerful they seem, they are slaves on the road to their demise. And they are suffering in the middle of it. They are struggling in the middle of it. It's that end scene from Inside Out when the cool girls are all talking and Riley first gets to class and she sees the cool girls and she's like, oh my gosh, those are the cool girls. We really want to be like the cool girls. What happens inside their head at the end of the day? They're all terrified. They're just, they look so cool, but they're like, oh my gosh, this life is not working for me. I swear that's what's happening in the world. It is loud and powerful and popular and it looks appealing and it is terrified because this is what's driving it. It has no answers. It just has fear 
and it is fighting without tools against it. And if you walk through this world, fighting your own sin and resisting the evil one, believing that Christ has accomplished the ultimate victory that's going on in your heart, uh, allowing himself to be the king of your life, you then have to bow down to no one. Do you know how different you would look and feel to everybody else? Yeah, they might call you self-righteous, and frankly, if you are, you should probably repent. But do you know how different and free you would look? This would just be a totally different world. This is the way that Paul describes what happened inside of him. He said, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, but thanks be to God, he talks about some stuff, and he says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You're like, wow, Paul, that's so poetic and wonderful. It's powerful. It's fragrant. It's victorious. What in the world does that look like, man? Like, okay, I'll tell you. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. But who's sufficient for these things? You're like, oh, that's great. It's still really poetic. Having some trouble. It's like, okay, let me, let me talk to you about me. We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, is commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul says, you want, you want to know what it looks like to be the fragrance, the powerful fragrance of God in this world for me? It means I, I, I'm not really worried about what people think about me anymore. I'm free to say what I need to say. Not because I'm some peddler trying to sell something to somebody, so worried about whether they're going to give me the currency I so crave from them. No, I, I just get to be free. I get to be an ambassador of Jesus. I get to be commissioned by God. And in the sight of God, I get to speak in Christ. You see, we want to know what that would look like for you. Skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 3. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What's he getting at? He's saying, like, you buy into this not because you're so afraid of the rules or the consequences. You're not trying to win anything from me either. If I'm not trying to win anything from you, you're not trying to win anything from me. You are free to simply listen to God and let God write his law onto your hearts so that you can just totally be motivated by something from within that God has planted there. Not me, where you're worried about how do you look in, in, you know, in the worlds that I'm powerful over, but just inside of you. What genuinely is happening inside you? I was talking with a friend who was talking with another friend. And, and this friend was kind of hearing from their friend. I'm trying to be as obscure as I can so that you guys aren't trying to guess who I'm talking about. Because um, I, I don't think you can. Um, but still, I'm going to be obscure, right? Because this is on the internet, and who knows? But, but the question that was there was, what are we doing about the fact that so many in the church today, especially the younger generation coming up, are just struggling and are fighting and are deconstructing their faith and are challenging the, the foundations and are, and are ripping the church apart, and I was talking to this friend, I was like, yeah, those are some good questions. And the person said, you know what, I found just a lot of freedom in just saying, tell me what you believe and how you're doing in your relationship with God. What if we just start there? What do you believe about Jesus? Think he existed? Think he died? Think he rose again? Well, that's going to change a lot if you believe that. What happens when you read God's word? What are you praying about? What's happening deep inside you when you're actually engaging with God? Not when you're criticizing everybody around you, but when you're actually engaging with God. You know what I liked about that? It challenged me. Because so often when I struggle, I want to do the exact same thing the Old Testament Israelites did. These are my enemies. God, you need to take care of them. God's like, yeah, I'm kind of using them to get at something in you. This world is collapsing around us. The things that were built on ancient foundations of faith, those seem to be crumbling because faith has been long gone from them. 
They're like trunks of dead trees, it feels like, in our culture. And we're watching them chip away. And if you think that your future is only secure and God's kingdom is only secure because of the political structures that somebody else built, we don't really understand God's kingdom. Or if you move out of the political sphere, if you think that your future is only good because of fill in the blank, you may really need God to come back and ask you the same kind of question that my friend was challenging their friend with. What do you really believe about God? Has he truly had the ability to define reality for you, to sit on the throne, to reign as the creator, and to be the only one from Isaiah 40 in the center of, I, of Exodus 15 that there is no one else like. If we do that, we get to walk the way that Paul talks about this. And I'll close with this as the worship team comes up. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Because when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry... By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I don't think I've ever preached anything particularly unique. Most of the time, what you hear from me has come from somebody else, either through a book or through other messages that I've heard. I'm a terrible plagiarizer. I do it all the time. Hopefully, we're all doing that from the word, so it's just kind of, you know, pretty transparent. But I, it, it is possible. I haven't heard anybody else say this. This may be one of the best victory chants from the New Testament. Because I think this passage, in particular this last slide, defines what victory looks like in 2024 for our church. That we all, with unveiled face, wouldn't look to this world, but behold the glory of the Lord. That we all would be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another and if that transformation is happening we're saying God you use my migraines you use my losses you give and you take away so that my heart can truly say that you are blessed if we could do that and if we could rally each other that way we'd be sharing in the triumph of Christ We'd be walking in this victory procession. We would have such a hope. We would be very bold and we would be deeply concerned. Not that people turn to our party, not that people return back to a good opinion of us, but we'd be deeply concerned that one turns to the Lord so that their veil would be removed. What if all he did for us in 2024 was give us that ministry? We get to the end of next year, the end of our 25 years together, and I'd call that a win. Let's pray to that end. Father, we are grateful because I, I can personally say I walked into this message in this context with a totally different paradigm. And I, I feel partially righted. I know there is a lot errant in me and in my thinking. But I, I feel corrected. I feel myself on my face, along with Joshua, saying, what, what message would my Lord have for his servant? Father, by your Spirit's power, that's what all of our hearts want to be right now is bowed down before you, on our faces before you, declaring you to be the only Holy One who we want to be more like. Lord, may we give up 
our love affair with being more popular in this world and more like the powerful of this world. May we die to that now and desire only to be commissioned by you, only to be servants of yours and your kingdom so that we could truly say your will be done on this earth your will be done in our church your will be done in our families as we get to the end of this next year may we be able to look back and say as we're saying now, that you have been faithful. Because your faithfulness is very great. Let's stand and worship God together.